The scripture lesson for this morning <clears throat> comes from the 17th chapter of Acts. Listen for the word of God. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though he indeed is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the midst of stewardship season, which in the Presbyterian Church leads each of us to focus on our involvement in our congregation and our financial commitment. And in a year in which we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I want to preach today on the topic, where does Westminster fit within Christianity today? Some of you heard a version of my thoughts in adult education on September the 10th or at the men's breakfast on October 13th. With apologies to those who have been down this listening road before, I want to share these thoughts with the larger congregation today in the form of a sermon. Let us pray. Lord of the church, the ideas of a sermon begin with you. They take root in the heart and mind of the preacher through the sacred text you have given us. 
And then they travel into the hearts and minds of the congregation. Bless this process today as you always promise to do so that your word may become the congregation's word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Depending on when we start counting, the Presbyterian world in the United States has shrunk from a high of about 4.5 million people, a figure reached during my lifetime, to a point where our denomination, which is still the largest of several Presbyterian denominations, currently numbers about 1.3 million. While this may lead us to lament the shape of Christianity today, our lament more accurately applies to Protestantism in North America than to Christianity around the world. According to Pew Research, a century ago, four out of five Christians in the world lived in North America or Europe. Today, the majority of Christians live in Asia, Africa, or Latin America. And Pew projects that by 2050, one in three Christians around the world will be African. None of this is cause for alarm concerning worldwide Christianity, which is doing quite well. But it raises nagging questions that we have had for generations about our own denomination questions about our own church experience at Westminster. Is there a place for a church like Westminster with worship that is rooted in tradition centuries old, with thoughtful preaching and teaching, with acceptance of and respect for people's individual religious experiences, and the differing moral and ethical viewpoints that arise from those experiences? Will there be a place in the world for the values and practices that we at Westminster hold dear and have embodied since our founding in 1940 as we move ever so quickly to 2040? Will the more than 350 children and youth that we nurture in our congregation grow up to desire a congregation like Westminster, and if they do, will they be able to find one? In other words, is our congregation a relic of a not-too-distant past? A vibrant relic, to be sure, a lively relic, a wonderful relic, but are we a relic nonetheless? My answer concerning where Westminster fits is admittedly an unapologetic affirmation of the status quo, of the way that, broadly speaking, Westminster is and has been during our now 77 years. But let me clarify and develop this affirmation. When I accepted the call to become pastor and head of staff at Westminster 13 years ago, I sense nervousness on the part of some on the pastor nominating committee that perhaps the church needed to change its worship style to attract younger families with children and youth. Their nervousness was and is not uncommon. 
As you know, many churches across the country have for the past 30 or 40 years been experimenting with more contemporary or creative worship styles. Some have reached more people that way. Some have reached younger people that way. Many have not. What I told the PNC in the interview was something like, it is better to know who we are and to be confident in who we are than to try to change for the benefit of some unknown somebody else. I believe this has proven true. In the years since, we have grown. The associate pastors we have called, Patrick, Casey, and Whitney, each bring their special gifts and personality to worship, and yet all lead worship as people nurtured in and confident with traditional Presbyterian worship. Certainly our music has reflected this traditional worship under the leadership of the three directors of music who have served this church over the years. And as we've seen in the few weeks that Ben has been with us as our interim, any new director will bring his or her own musical gifts and interests. And that, by definition, will expand our genre of music but all within worship traditions that are near and close to our hearts. As many of you know, we continue to attract young adults and others to our congregation who walk through these doors and say, this feels like the church at home. And they stay. We are fortunate that in the way we have worshipped in the past, that the way we've worshipped in the past continues to meet the spiritual needs of a significant number of people in the present. Even as we, in good Presbyterian fashion, fashioned are reformed and ever reforming in all that we do, including our worship. Second, I believe that Westminster does and will fit into a Christianity in the present and future because there is a universal human need and appreciation for what I would call the holy man or the holy woman. With the pressures of work, relationships, marriage, child rearing, mental and physical illness, aging, loneliness, political fragmentation and divisiveness, as well as the seemingly endless drive for achievement and success that marks our lives. The idea that there is someone in your life who in some way stands for God, who can pray with us and for us, who can occupy a space that represents sanctuary, is a deep, human spiritual need that if a church responds well will lead that church to be vibrant and meaningful. This is why Westminster has for decades provided a special staff person for ministry to seniors. 
This is why we have expanded our staff to now include three associate pastors. This is why we have small groups, a new adult Bible study on Sunday morning, new Presbyterian women's circles, roundtable discussions in the Bible classes that I teach, dessert and dialogue, centering prayer, and retreats for nearly every age group in the congregation. We can never underestimate the value of sitting in a sanctuary alone or with a person of the cloth with whom we may speak about things we have never spoken of before, with whom we may pray and be prayed for, with whom we may sit in silence. When a church seeks to meet well this universal human need, that church will do well. In your life at Westminster, I hope and I urge you to try to find someone in this congregation or someone among our four clergy or staff members with whom you can talk whenever that instinct arises within you. Third, I believe there will always be people in our country, especially in the Washington, Alexandria, Arlington area that we serve, who are more likely to respond to the Christian faith when its scripture, theology, and traditions are presented in conjunction with classical and contemporary learning in science, the humanities, and the social sciences. Just as was the case as in our passage, when the Apostle Paul preached at Athens, some who find their way to Westminster will experience our worship service and scoff. Some will not respond, but some will say, I want to hear more. We are a congregation which sits with people who want to hear more. Now those are three ways that I affirm or believe that Westminster has a good future and a good role within worldwide Christianity. I'd now like to suggest three more ways, so you're going to get three and three, but don't get lost. Ways that Westminster can lead you as members. Practical ways, somewhat. Toward this year's education theme of fuller faith and service and of our stewardship theme of lighting the path together. First, here's the first one. <laughs> what I am trying to do in preaching and teaching and what I believe we're all trying to do at all levels for children, youth, and adults is to provide you with an understanding and experience of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments so that they become more a part of who you are as you leave this sanctuary and go into the world. I hope that you experience our worship in a way that shapes you often beneath the conscious mind. I hope that in your outlook on life, your understanding of yourself, your understanding of the world, 
Your desire to make as much sense as possible of the pain you have known and the love you have known is illumined by what you experience here on Sundays. Perhaps it is more by osmosis than direct learning. Perhaps it is more a matter of the heart than of the mind. But through a phrase you hear from the minister, through a verse from a hymn, through a sentence in a biblical passage that pops into your mind sometime months later, these are all ways that we are shaped and formed by Scripture and tradition. And I hope you experience at least some of this nearly every time you worship here. Such experience will lead you to fuller faith and service, and it will join you with others in lighting the path together. Second, given that one of our hallmarks as a congregation is to seek to cultivate among our membership people of differing viewpoints on issues before our nation and world, I want to stress that it is ultimately you and only you who can decide in a given situation how you are going to act or advocate or vote or march for something on which your faith has impact. Ultimately, each of us decides in our own conscience with and before God what we believe and what we are going to do in a particular situation. My hope is that what we do in preaching and teaching and worship and pastoral care plays a role in your decision-making on matters of conscience before God. Now third, I realize that I am describing faith here almost solely in individualistic terms with little or no reference about what Westminster does or might do in the community or the larger world. But let me say a couple of things about this. We have at Westminster a well-developed program of helping others that encompasses one major project internationally, the United Orphanage and Academy in Moist Bridge, Kenya, two major projects nationally, the Ministry for Youth and Children on the Spirit Lake Indian Reservation in North Dakota, and the Appalachian Service Project, where eight of our members are with Patrick this weekend, or I think they've just arrived back, doing physical labor with people in one of the poorest counties in America. In addition, as most of you know, we have deep invol involvement with volunteer support and board membership and financial support for numerous agencies, secular and religious, that provide relief and support for people in Alexandria and Arlington. In any given year, Westminster spends around $2 million on everything that we do. Upwards of 400000 of that supports these various mission efforts. The characteristic 
of nearly all our involvement and support is relief and assistance. In keeping with our cultivation of differing viewpoints and individual conscience in matters political and ethical, our involvement is rarely in the realm of advocacy or social change. Westminster has long had a caution about official public advocacy, either from the pulpit or from actions of the session, out of a desire to nurture people of different political persuasions as part of our congregation. And so that we might discuss our differences with members of our own church, learn from them, and develop our own thoughts and actions further. To keep such exchanges a healthy part of our church and faith, I ask that when you find yourself in a discussion at Westminster with someone with whom you don't agree, normally on matters political, consider resisting the temptation to stare at your shoes or to move to the next clump of people in Fellowship Hall where you might find someone with whom you agree or with whom you can discuss the weather or the World Series. I ask you, even though I know there are times when sanctuary is appropriate, and I want to affirm that, but I ask you to consider engaging with those with whom you initially disagree. What better place for having your mind challenged and therefore either confirmed or changed than in a discussion with a church member or a pastor with whom you share a common faith, a common baptism, and often a common pew. This is not the only way for a church to light the pathway in the world. But it is a way that Westminster has embodied in the past and a way that I affirm for the present and the future. While it may sometimes lead us to be less than what we could be, at other times it leads us to be more than what we might otherwise be. In a terribly divided nation, for us to worship together in this community, as diverse as we are politically within this congregation, may be one of the best ways that we light the path together. Now, I know I have a reputation of reading a lot, and believe me, the reputation far exceeds the reality. But I did earlier this year come across a quote from Wordsworth with which I'd like to close. What we have loved, Wordsworth wrote, others will love, and we will teach them how. My hope is that what I've outlined today expresses some of what we have loved about Westminster Presbyterian Church and that we will be moved to teach others. 
and that they too will come to love what we have loved. Amen.